We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. In 2005, back when God was a boy, I was the coordinator of a monthly meetup group devoted to Christian mysticism that met at the Episcopal Cathedral in Atlanta. We were a small group, about 10 or 15 of us, and frankly, most of us had silver or gray hair, even back then. So when at one of our meetings, a carload of young people in their 20s showed up, we took notice. They were all from a house church that met out in the suburbs. And it was clear that they balanced a meaningful spirituality with a thoughtful and intelligent understanding of life. After our meeting, I had a nice chat with the group's apparent ringleader, an articulate young man named Mike Morell. I learned that Mike was involved in the movement that was known, at least back then, as the Emerging Church. We became friends, and soon Mike was introducing me to some of the most interesting voices in contemporary Christian literature, including Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, Richard Rohr, and Peter Rawlins. Many years have gone by, but I know I can still turn to Mike for insight into what's happening at the cutting edges of theology, spirituality, interspirituality, and culture. So who is Mike Morell? He may be best known as the collaborating author with Richard Rohr on The Divine Dance, The Trinity, and Your Transformation. Mike is one of the co-founders of the Wild Goose Festival, a justice, arts, and spirituality gathering that takes place each July in Western North Carolina. He is also the founder of the Wisdom Camp, which takes place each year just before the Wild Goose. Mike curates contemplative and community experiences through programs such as Relational Skills and Rewilder, wherein he joyfully holds the space for the extraordinary transformation that can take place at the intersection of anticipation, imagination, and radical acceptance. Mike lives with his wife, Jasmine, and their two wonderful daughters in Asheville, North Carolina. To learn more about Mike's ongoing exploration of spirit, culture, and permaculture, visit his blog at mikemorell.org. Mike, it is a joy to welcome you to Encountering Silence. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. It's really good to be here. So we usually begin our conversations with our dialogue partners by checking in with your relationship with silence. So how is silence a part of your life and your spiritual practice? Well, Part of it begins, you know, a few years before the introduction that you gave, but weaves into what you just shared. I think the first time I had, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily placing the value on silence, but kind of an inner contemplative sense. I was still in a very conservative Presbyterian church context. I was uh, kind of an ad hoc worship leader. And one day I was sitting in the chapel in our church before something was beginning and I was reading through John's Gospel, chapter 17, for the first time. 
this very, you know, the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus, which is a very mystical contemplative prayer where he makes some shocking claims about his intimacy with God the Father and the sort of intercommunion and fellowship. And then even more shockingly says that all of his followers are invited into this very same kind of communion, that, that they may be one even as we are one. And it just kind of blew me away, this idea of, of mystical oneness with God and the you know, similar claims that Jesus made for his own intimacy with his Abba were somehow accessible to us. Even in my Pentecostal background before Presbyterianism, I'd never heard such a a mystically potent description of the spiritual life, never mind hiding out in my own Bible. And so there was this, this sense of something possible, but beyond it being a beautiful idea, I really didn't know what to do with it at that time. I was, you know, I was a teenager. I was probably like 17, maybe 18 when I read this. But then when I went off to college, I did begin throwing in with this group of house church folks, which would be a whole other rabbit trail. I really won't get into that too much, except to say that we gathered together in these open participatory gatherings where women and men were all free to share and to participate. And while there was this sort of very stereotypical Protestant or even restorationist idea of going back to the way church was done in the first century, our movement was a little peculiar in that we also had an appreciation for various Christian mystics ranging from uh, Brother Lawrence to some more heterodox mystics like Jean Villon and Michael Molinos and Francois Fenelon, who were in some ways uh, either anti-clerical or could be interpreted that way. And so it sort of gelled a little bit with our, our house church vibe. But it was within those books and some contemporary articulations that I began to first catch glimpses of contemplative prayer, of, of prayer of silence. So I, I would say that I was a wannabe contemplative starting my freshman year in college in the late 90s, which incidentally was around the same time I discovered your work, Carl, back in the day at the website of unknowing, which I'm trying to remember if at that particular stage you were a, uh, a pagan-friendly Christian or a Christian-friendly pagan. It was definitely very inner-spiritual <laughs> in its uh, contemplative resources, but it was quite rich. I'm not sure there was much of a difference, Mike. <laughs> yeah, so it was, your, late... it was your postmodern spirituality phase. Yeah, yeah. Embracing Jesus and the Goddess is the title of one of my books. Um, mm -hmm. was... Yeah, from around that era. And, and frankly, well, I didn't... I mean, it... In 15 years, I didn't realize you knew my work as a pagan. That's fascinating. I mean, I've always known that you kind of thought it was cool that I was a pagan, but I didn't realize you were actually familiar with the work. So, Well, so around the same time as I was discovering the house church movement and contemplative spirituality, I was also discovering a DSL high-speed internet connection. <laughs> and, you know, and this was the, around the birth of the popular internet. And how I kind of began moving in these various circles with contemplatives, with emerging church, et cetera. As you know, Carl, I started this web directory called Sights Unseen with one of my college roommates. It was originally a GeoCities page where this was, you know, back then, <laughs> the biggest, back then the biggest search engine was Dogpile. And, you know, the Internet was just a boy along with God. And so 
we were we were tracking by hand the various links pages that that sites we enjoyed were linking to. So we were kind of creating this organic semantic web of interesting spiritual ideas. And my own sense of what was possible began growing along with my links directory. At its height, my links directory had about 8,000 websites cataloged, uh, whether those were zines, magazines, blogs as they began to emerge, intentional communities, churches, uh, monastic communities, new monastic communities. And, and frankly, the website of a knowing Carl kind of freaked me out a bit because I was still relatively theologically conservative at that point. And while I was drawn to the interior life and the, and the contemplative life, I wanted to make sure that I was staying faithful to the revelation of God and Jesus Christ as I understood it. So, you know, I, I would say that I kind of, you know, peeked open in that Pandora's <laughs> box and slammed it shut again uh, until I, I, you know, you stayed on my radar. And then I discovered you a few years later. I think it was maybe right after I was a newlywed. And we were still in Georgia before we moved to our intentional house church community in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I believe that was when your belief net essay was published about your reconversion back into Christianity. I actually, when I met you, you and Jasmine hadn't gotten married yet. So, um, oh, okay. So it was before we got married. All right. Yeah. 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 By maybe about a year then. Um, yeah. And yeah, you hosted the Atlanta mystics meetup, the Julian meetings, and those were certainly a next step in my appreciation of silence. You know, with my with my house church, I would say in the year 2000, I took my first like week long contemplative retreat where there was a lot of silence baked in. And, you know, for a 20 year old, it was quite the mind altering and heart opening experience to sort of spending several days marinating in silence after, you know, the monkey mind finishes running its course and then realizing that there's something possible on the other side. And while it was an interactive retreat in that we had certain spiritual exercises we were doing as partners, it made the few words that we spoke so much more rich, so much more vulnerable. And I think that's when I began to have an experiential taste of the possibility of different, I don't like to use the word levels, but different uh, experiences of consciousness, different stages of consciousness development and that, you know, a whole different world was possible with silence. You know, now many years have passed. I'm a father of two children. I run my own businesses. I'm definitely a householder more than a cloistered monastic type. And so I'm still a wannabe collect contemplative. I'm still, you know, falling off that horse and getting up. My relationship with silence and the contemplative spirituality reminds me of uh, the Duke theologian Stanley Hauerwas's relationship with pacifism where he says, I'm, I'm not a pacifist because I'm inclined toward peace. I'm a pacifist because I'm actually a very violent and temperamental man. For me, if we were to go by introversion, extroversion, I'm, I'm kind of that cutesy new term, ambiversion, where I sometimes you know, get charged up and, and energized by being with others. And then I can also take pauses of silence. And to really tend to that part of myself that needs the silence, I try to practice it on a regular basis even when I don't want to. And I think that sometimes, um, and this might get, be a preview of what we'll discuss in a little bit, I think sometimes people my age and younger, when they're thinking of a spiritual path and a spiritual practice, they think, what suits my personality or what suits my temperament? And there's a certain practicality in that. 
I probably wouldn't do something that was completely against anything I wanted to do because that probably wouldn't be sustainable. But again, going with these possibilities of different stages of consciousness, it might very well be that what grates against me initially really has a gift in there for me if I stick to it. And that's what I experience when I you know, continue to return to that interior silence in order to experience the, the fellowship of, of God and the communion of saints. Yeah, Mike, before we move into a couple questions about uh, the book you wrote with Richard Rohr, The Divine Dance, about Trinity and transformation, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the impetus for that book and then the origin of the relationship with Richard Rohr in order to write the book. Sure. Well, I had been uh, a deep admirer of Richard's work for for many years. Uh, Years ago, right when I was working on this extensive web directory, I also connected with a clearinghouse online called theooze.com. And back then, the ooze was this post-modernity and Christianity conversation clearinghouse. So in an era before social media, the ooze had these hopping message boards where people could discuss questions about faith and deconstruction and what does it look like to do church in a you know less rigid way. Before blogs were even really a thing, people like Brian McLaren and others got their start uh, publishing articles on the ooze. So there was this whole fertile clearinghouse of ideas. And you know the founder, Spencer Burke, was really into Catholic mystics before it was cool for us uh, evangelicals and Protestants to do so. Uh, Spencer had a background with a big California megachurch, but he also collected first edition Thomas Merton books. And it was uh, Spencer that first introduced me to the work of Thomas Keating, as well as to the work of Richard Rohr. And before I met Spencer, he had uh, Richard out for an event called Solar Eyes, a learning party in the late 90s. So I think the very first time I ever heard any of Richard's teaching was from a Solar Eyes CD. And one thing led to another. I began helping Spencer organize Solar Eyes's subsequent ones. And so I met Richard for the first time in Solar Eyes 2007 in the Bahamas. It was a, a you know real roughing it kind of setting to to connect. <laughs> it was uh, it was Richard. It was N.T. Wright. It was Brennan Manning before he passed away. It was uh, Rita Brock, uh, co-author of Saving Paradise, one of my favorite church history books. It's a beautiful time, and got to spend you know some one-on-one time with Richard. Discussed my love of writing. You know, discussed you know some of his what he was working on. And it was my first experience with the Enneagram that weekend, too. And he personally typed me. So that was that was a lot of fun. That was you know, 2007. And then as, as life moved on, we didn't stay in touch or anything, but I began working on the Wild Goose Festival with Gareth Higgins and a couple other folks getting the goose off the ground. And Richard was such a huge uh, supporter in those early years when he traveled more. And he was at our first several Wild Goose Festivals. So we stayed in touch through all that. And and in the meantime, I have this whole other hat I wear where I work in publishing. I help authors and publishers with book launches in progressive and contemplative Christianity spaces through my service called Speakeasy. And so I have a lot of friends in publishing. One friend in publishing in particular who really helped me get my start is a man named Don Milam. 
and Don works in the charismatic and uh, Pentecostal publishing world. But like Spencer is very well read beyond those borders and you know, deeply appreciated Richard's work. One of, one of mm -hmm. Richard's books was particularly helpful when his wife was uh, dying of cancer. So Don really wanted to publish Richard and there was material that I really wanted to see come to light, uh, Richard's teachings on the Trinity. He hosted a couple conferences uh, several years prior to that that were recorded including the first time he met Cynthia Bourget. And they had um, one, I believe that was the Shape of God conference. And the material that she was, you know, bringing out from that conference later became her book, The Holy Trinity and the Law of Three, looking at the relationship between the Trinity and the Gurdjieff work. But Richards had not seen the light of day. And I really wanted to uh, work with him to develop that into a book. And so we reached out uh, through the publisher. I expressed that interest. Wasn't something he normally does working with collaborators, but uh, he decided that he wanted to give it a try. So we put together a few sample chapters and he greenlit the project. And so we began collaborating on that together. And it was uh, a really rich experience. Yeah, that's that's spectacular. I, I, I didn't realize uh, to hear that backstory really fills in the gaps for that book for me, you know, because, you know, I've read the book, but I, I didn't really um, I guess I just didn't pay attention to how it came into being. But now that you say that, I, 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 I do recall. Is there a, is it in the preface or do you mention this story of how it came to be somewhere? We, we don't, but. You know, there's there's some subtext in the the foreword by Paul Young. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, the two biggest influences at that point in my life on my idea of the Trinity were from Richard and these conferences, as well as from Paul's book, The Shack. Hmm. Yeah, I just mentioned that I do book launches. Working on The Shack, I actually helped launch The Shack. Right. And that was a really, uh, that was another really ritually rewarding uh, process. I was introduced to Paul through the uh, co-publishers at that time, and we worked on The Shack in, in 2007 during that launch. And uh, weirdly enough, my blurb about the book ended up making the back cover sandwiched between Michael W. Smith and Wynonna Judd. So <laughs> it's uh, one of those strange things in, that happens sometimes. But I, yeah, I was really grateful to be able to introduce Paul and Richard because they had been uh, admirers of each other for a long time. And then, of course, ended up doing the Divine Dance Conference together. Mm. So it all came, if you'll pardon the pun, full circle. <laughs> you know, regarding the book, there's there's a lot of things I, I think I could want to unpack there. But I think I think one of the questions that uh, I, I know that the three of us were kind of interested about is this topic, you know, this is called Encountering Silence, this podcast. So you have a chapter in that book called Silence, colon, Father. So could you, could you flesh that out? How, what, what are you trying to say there? What, what, why do you equate silence with the Father? And then what does that mean for us, you know, mm. especially mm. for Christians? How is the Father silent? Mm. <laughs> when you phrase the question that way, I think it's really easy to go into some Freudian sense. Of, yes. Oh, man. <laughs> Silent, stoic dad, you know, <laughs> sitting in the corner, hey. being indifferent. Come on. You're a father. I'm a father. Let's let's leave the dads alone today. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, well, it is this, it is this paradox because that, that stereotype comes from somewhere right. and right. it is widespread in unhealthy iterations of, of patriarchy mm-hmm. up to and through and including um, the Middle East, the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. And so what we're getting at, I think, in, in the book, and I revisited that chapter recently, is a different kind of silence. You know, there are many different qualities of silence, as we all know. There's the awkward silences, the uncomfortable silences. And then there's a silence of unconditional presence Mm. and spacious regard and the possibility of anything happening. And that is really what I see as the silence of the Father in very, when we're looking at the Trinity through the lens of personification, we see the Father often associated with Creator. And even, you know, in a more apophatic sense, sort of via negativa, it's the, the palette on which creation can unfold. It is the pregnant silence before the Word, the Logos, you know, Jesus is spoken. And then the Spirit brings the fullness, brings the birth through the birth canal. So, so Father as, as silence is the spaciousness where anything is possible, but also a beauty to rest in in and of itself. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. What I really appreciate about y'all's show is that you you frequently emphasize the non-instrumentality of silence. That yes, uh, being silent and having coming to a place of inner repose can help us have a healthier vocal life, outward life, active life. But it's not merely the warm-up where the active life is the main event. I think again, going with this idea of, of perichoresis in the book or a circle dance. Uh, to name another, name check another of Richard's books, everything belongs, right? Right. So it's, uh, you know, silence is not, uh, you know, inferior to action any more than actions inferior to silence. Like we all, it all belongs. And so when we, when we speak of, of the father as being silence, I think of it as this, just a space of unconditional regard and mm. unconditional presence that we can rest in. And that we can also come to our own silence. And, you know, to paraphrase Mother Teresa, we can be silent together. Mike, just out a curiosity, more curiosity of your personal take, not necessarily the choices in the book, but considering some of these metaphors you're using, right, pregnancy, creativity, whatnot, that are often um, gendered differently. Why gendered um, language for the use of father in this particular situation? <laughs> oh my, am I answering for the entire Christian tradition or, or for myself? <laughs> for yourself. More like for a myself. personal reflection. Yeah. And maybe yeah. if you were to write this today, would it look would it sound differently? Would it read differently? Hmm. I feel like I might 
bungle this answer because my my own thoughts about this there's there's a a cataphatic way that I would I would think about this in terms of the ways that we commonly use language and then there's also more of a dynamic way of looking at how images and metaphors function on a, maybe a more subtle level. Mm. And I have different answers for each of those. On, on a cataphatic level, when it comes to like the way that we pray, the way that we speak, the way that we, we organize worship, I am very comfortable with feminine language for God. I'm very comfortable with gender neutral language for God. I you know, worship as a part of a church community that, that uses the full range of, of language to, to speak of God. Because you know the thing about, for me, the the apophatic inadequacy of language to express doesn't mean that we're always silent. It also means that there's this embarrassment of riches of words and vocabulary that we can use to attempt to s the ineffable. <laughs> so, so on, on the one hand, <laughs> on the one hand, yes, um, I am all for creator, redeemer, sustainer. Um, you know, for all of these different images of God. And yet, I see a certain instrumentality in preserving traditional language in its own lane for very specific purposes. And and maybe it's my own inner, you know, Bible geek that comes from my fundamentalist background. But I really like to to play with the linguistics and kind of touch on what Paul Young did in his very cataphatic novel, The Shack, where he makes a strong biblical case that the Holy Spirit is a feminine member of the Trinity, that even if we're going to go into etymology of, of ruach, breath, in Hebrew, that it's a very feminine word. And the Moravians, interestingly, saw, uh, and this you know, maybe is, is in contradistinction to perhaps how folk Catholicism has envisioned Mary, but they saw that the Holy Spirit as, as like God the Mother, so it was like, you know, there was, there's God the Father, there's God the Mother begetting the Son. And I really like that as a, as a potentiality, especially as I dive into some Hebrew Bible history. And there's this whole strong sense that Yahweh used to have a feminine consort, mm -hmm. a wife, right. that was edited out of the story right. uh, in, in some ways. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So the Shekinah, the, this this very feminine sense, and it it's they struggled with you know that I think and being good monotheists, they also struggled with that and being a very unhealthily patriarchal culture, and so that feminine was was pushed out, and then the best the mystics could do was then say God was beyond gender. And so again, it's these different approaches of cataphatic and apophatic: is God genderless or is God genderful? I think the answer could be yes. There could be ways in which we can express both. So I love the idea of, of mining these almost Jungian polarities and, and going ahead and embracing God the Father. Uh, again, if that makes me feel uncomfortable, just like spiritual practices make me feel uncomfortable, there might be something for me in looking at well, what, what is a healthy male archetype. And that's been a passion of Father Richard's and of mine, of what does male initiation look mm. like? What does it mean to be a healthy man rather than simply trying to in shame, disown any aspects of my maleness? How can I repent of the aspects of my maleness that have caused harm, but elevate and celebrate these strong aspects? And similarly, what if we were able to do a full-throated challenge of, 
of unhealthy fundamentalism on its own terms and say, no, you could actually make a biblical case for the femininity of the Godhead within this person of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So that's a really fun conversation for me, and I, I like that to supplement um, you know, some of these other ways in which I simply would be fine with, with gender-neutral language for the Trinity, because it is about the function and the flow uh, more so than that this is a literal, you know, gen- like I don't expect to find genitalia in God <laughs> in a literal sense. And yet there yeah. are these archetypal polarities that if we're going to play with the Trinity, the idea that there's unity found within diversity, then man, wouldn't that be healthy for looking at what a queer theology or a queer spirituality can look like? What does it, what does it mean for Trinity to be gender full and, you know, to be all and none at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and then your language there, um, you're talking about going a full-throated Bible kind of for, for the female of God. Uh, you know, I think of, of biblical writers who, again, who are independent and who might be outside the mainstream, but like Margaret Barker, for instance, has spent a lot of time uh, uncovering that the original Hebrew uh, vision of God had a very strong feminine consort uh, piece for Yahweh. Um, and, and so that, that got written out, you know, and that we see the, the lens shifting over time. So, yeah, I, I find your answer is extremely interesting because the, the opportunities to either be gender less or gender full uh, seem there's enough there. It's very, it's very mystical. It's very contemplative. It's a both and right. There's, there's a whole spectrum that can be explored there. You know, that if we allow ourselves to ask those questions. Right. And, and what, what silence teaches us, what I think it teaches us when we're, we're approaching this great mystery is the, the poverty of any words to fully encapsulate what's going on. Mm. So, you know, embracing paradox just seems to me to be a sensible thing to do. It's not because I want to be cool and postmodern. It's like all of these words describe something real that we can touch and experience. And none of these words have a monopoly on that experience. So along with this, the book addresses a lot of things regarding transcendence and transformation. And because I'm me and because you already brought up Thomas Merton, um, I notice Merton is included, his voice is included in this, and you address his concept of the true self and unpack that a little bit. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how this book speaks to the true self-concept and what that means to you and how that relates to the Trinity. I will say that, you know, that the true self uh, idea is way more of Richard's lane than it is the paradigm that I tend to use. Merton uses this, Father Richard uses this, Father Thomas Keating used this, and I think I inherit a little bit of, of Cynthia Bourgeau's skepticism toward the idea of true self, honestly. And we probably get it from the same source, because at this point, I've been several years into the Gurdjieff work, which I can describe what that is in a little bit. But in a, in a, in a nutshell, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff was this late 19th century, early 20th century esoteric teacher who was kind of like Ken Wilber, you know, a century before Ken Wilber, in that he intentionally sought the good and the true and the useful in a variety of, of spiritual paths. 
And he brought a lot of ideas to the West that we might think of as Eastern ideas that are now such a common part of our spiritual vocabulary that they've, they've almost become meaningless, like the idea that we're asleep and we need to wake up, for instance. One of Gurdjieff's ideas that I think a lot of psychologists also really buy into, like dialectical behavioral therapists, are that we don't really have a self and we don't really have like two selves, like a true self and a false self. We have an infinite number of eyes, you know, like the letter I, that all speak in the first person. They all claim meanness, but they're, they come online at vastly different times. There can be an I that says, I want to start exercising more and eating better. And that might be the I of the evening right before I go to bed. And then the eye of the morning, when it's actually time to prepare myself something to eat and to schedule my exercise, might be the busy eye that says, I have no time to do that. And then there's another eye that's just wrapped in guilt and is chastising me for that. So we have this, this plethora, you know, and sometimes I think some spiritual paths say, well, you know, you have the ego and you need to subdue the ego. Gurdjieff says, oh man, if only you had an ego, if only you had a single focal point <laughs> that could be tamed. Like it actually takes a lot of effort to even get there because we, we, we're so discombobulated. And so for the, the Gurdjieff work, there are a variety of practices, some that we might recognize as contemplative practices, some that we might recognize as more active practices that attempt to draw us into an inner coherency to an inner state of, of witness that looks at these, you know, variety of eyes and, and begins to form alliances within ourselves. And at that point, I think some of what others are getting at by the true self can begin to, to come into play. It's what uh, the Gurdjieff work calls self-remembering um, or self-observation as a, as a starter. Self-observation is where I begin to notice how scattered I am how many different eyes I have running around inside of me. And eventually self-remembrance is similar to the, the Christian idea, I think, of, of amnesias, of, of remembrance, or the, the Sufi idea of, of zikr. But there's a sense of recall that is a recollection that's not merely biographical, but it's a recollection that is also transcendent, like we're remembering something very, very ancient and very stable that is possible within ourselves. And so what do you, how do you connect that then? If we're not going to talk about the true self, how do you connect that with this Trinitarian path? Because I think this is very interesting. What's mm -hmm. that connection for you? Well, so the tension between, say, the divine dance and something like the shack is that the shack for me is this sublime work of devotional spirituality where we're, we're looking at these persons of the Trinity as these more or less fixed identities that we develop this, this healthy attachment to. We develop this trusting, dialogical, I-thou kind of relationship with. And that's a very valid and vital path. In the Divine Dance, we, we tend to look more at the dynamism under the hood of the Trinity. We look at the, the flow of relationality itself, which is why we got some pushback from, say, Calvinists and the Gospel Coalition and others who were, were heresy hunters, because even though our book is very steeped in Scripture and in and the great tradition of Christianity, uh, they rightly picked up that we were not so hung up on these external identities of this is the Father, this is the Son, this is the Spirit. Even though we use that language some in the book, we're talking about this sort of inner flow and inner dynamism. And 
this maybe, you know, is more fully fleshed out even in, in Cynthia's book, The Holy Trinity and the Law of Three. But within the Gurdjieff work, there is this concept of the Law of Three. And I even want to be careful speaking of it because it's really easy to get wrong. It's really easy to sort of stereotype. And, and we have a saying in the work that we don't speak of the work unless we are working ourselves in the present moment. So I'm, even as I'm, I'm speaking, I'm wanting to slow down a little bit and see if I can even accurately convey something that would be helpful. Um, and just to clarify for people who don't know, the work is... Uh, yeah, the, the Gurdjieff work, uh, or short for work on oneself, work on myself, work for the sake of others, work for the sake of the work itself. <laughs> Thanks. Is the, is the idea behind it, yes. So... The, the law of three is also known in, in Gurdjieff's sort of whimsical style as the law of universe creation. He says it's the way that in which anything that comes into being comes into being. There are these three forces that are sort of alchemically at play that give birth to a, a fourth force on a new level of arising or occurring. And we have this idea in a different way, in, in a binary way in Western culture, in the Hegelian dialectic. In the Hegelian dialectic, we say there are two forces. There's a thesis and an antithesis, and they form a new synthesis, sort of a third level of arising. And Gurdjieff's metaphysic was it's not dualistic, it's ternary. It's, uh, it is Trinitarian. He saw Trinitarian patterns everywhere. And some of his students after him very explicitly tie this in with the idea of the Christian Trinity. And Gurdjieff himself alludes to it, because the thing is, he was born and died Eastern Orthodox. It's very much a part of his DNA as well. But the Law of Three basically talks about holy affirming, holy denying, and holy reconciling. H-O-L-Y. So it can be tempting to see these three forces, holy affirming, holy denying, as, as synonymous with thesis and antithesis, but there's actually not a value judgment here. Holy affirming is anything that is being advanced by a particular force. So we could talk about, well, we could talk about this current COVID-19 pandemic, and we could talk about the presence of this novel coronavirus as an affirming force in the sense that it is, is going out into the world and it's infecting some of us and we're learning about it, and it's, it's, it's sort of creating this response. Holy denying is the response. It is this sort of no to what is being advanced. So, you know, we could say that, that frontline medical workers, to all of us who are sheltering in place, that we are, are marshalling this holy denying energy to, to say a hard no. And holy reconciling, reconciling force is not, a synthesis of those two forces. It's actually a novel force you know, um, that comes, that, that's completely different than those. And it's probably premature to even speak about what that might be in this current context. What will, what will be this sort of yeast that, that goes into the mix of this, this recipe, the, the affirming, the affirming rising, and then the, the denying needing of it, the attempt to literally flatten the curve. What's going to be the, the holy reconciling that gives birth to a new octave, to this fourth thing that is the new arising. But I think we all have a sense that this new arising 
is coming. Like we, I think we all know that <laughs> we don't actually want to quote unquote, get back to normal. We don't want to revert to a pre COVID-19 world because that was also full of a lot of fear and a lot of sickness and a lot of death. And so I think especially some of those of us on contemplative paths are appreciating the slowdown. Uh, we're appreciating some of the unexpected and difficult gifts that are being given to us in this, in this you know, unique moment in globally connected humanity. And I'd like to think that we're preparing our hearts for what that holy reconciling force will be so that we can be a yes to that even as we are occupying the holy denying right now. Because that's the other thing. It's For me, the law of three is a very functional non-duality. Sometimes non-duality in spiritual circles is presented as this blissed out ideal. Whereas to me, non-duality means that everything literally belongs, uh, including the, my enemy, including what I don't like. It has to all belong. And so I can be non-dual while being a hard no to something occupying holy denying it my my station might not be holy reconciling uh even though that's very much in our our religious performative dna we're supposed to be ministers of reconciliation you know but sometimes i think we rush to that before we even know what it means because our consciousness is not keeping up with our vocabulary and i think so many religious folks have very lofty vocabulary but without the consciousness, the being, the heart cultivated, that can become a very dangerous weapon. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you. <laughs>